Hi, I'm Bobby Bascom, and today on the Living on Earth podcast, we'll take a deep dive into the fascinating world of bees. There are more than 20,000 species worldwide, and we'll have some tips for helping the bees where you live. Also, an essay from our explorer-in-residence, Mark Seth Lender, about his personal encounter with a bee. But first, your support helps make it possible to bring you this podcast. So please, contribute what you can. $5 or more makes a difference. You can donate right now at LOE.org. And thanks! As children, most of us are innately curious about the natural world. But on the way to adulthood, that curiosity and connection are often lost. When author Bridget Strawbridge Howard realized that she wanted to recapture her childhood connection to nature, she chose the humble bee as ambassador to the world she wanted to explore. In her book, Dancing with Bees, A Journey Back to Nature, Bridget describes how she learned to notice the world around her by paying special attention to the honeybees, the bumblebees, and the solitary bees that buzzed right through her garden and into her heart. And she joins me now. Bridget, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, Bridget, your book is all about your journey to connect with nature the way you described that you did as a child. What in your life made you realize that you had lost that connection? It was a eureka moment. I lived on the Malvern Hills in Worcestershire, and I'd walk over the hills three times every week on my way to work in a little organic cafe on the other side of the hill. And this particular day, I don't know what it was, but I was actually hit with the realization that I didn't recognize the trees I'd just walked past. And it shocked me. It just stopped me dead in my tracks. And so then I looked around further and realized I didn't really know what the wildflowers were. And it was a moment, actually. It was an actual moment. And what made you um, decide to choose bees as your ambassador to connecting with nature again? It's bizarre because I was at that time campaigning to raise awareness of bee decline. And this is going back to 2005, 2006. And there was a phenomena that was known, is still known, as colony collapse disorder, CCD. And the papers and the news channels were full of apocalyptic headlines about bee decline. So I was worried about this at the time, very much from a human-centric viewpoint, really. I was concerned about the human food chain. So I'd been looking into that for a little while, seeing if I could try and find out more about the causes. And it was during that quest that I discovered that, first of all, it wasn't just about the honeybee, that there were many, many more bees that were in trouble. And it kind of also introduced me to this vast world that is the world of bees that I just had no idea existed before. And that happened. My awareness and realisation of this huge diversity of bees came about at the same time as as I had just realized that I'd just lost touch with everything. I suddenly saw bees in a different light. And the more I watched them, the more I took notice of them, the more endearing I found them and the more I just fell in love with them. And they just kind of led me into this world that is, well, it's never ending. It's, it's fantastic. I just seem to be going backwards to childhood, but I feel that that's a forward way to go. In your journey to learn about bees, you learned a lot. I mean, there are thousands of different species of bees. As you mentioned, um, many of us probably just think of honeybees, maybe bumblebees. But how many species are there and, and what, you know, really sets them apart from each other? Okay, well, on planet Earth, there are some 20 
to 25,000 different species. And those are just the ones that have been recorded, you know, and described. And I think you have about 4,000 species in North America alone. And I think about nine of those are honeybees, plus there are some subspecies. And there are around 250 different species of bumblebee. And the rest are solitary bees. Broadly speaking, you can divide these bees between those that are social, um, truly social, that's the, the honeybees and the bumblebees, and those that are not fully social, some of them have social traits, but some of them are like single mums. Social insects have a queen, and they have sometimes tens of thousands of workers in a colony, and they have males, and there is a division of labour. But there's also cooperative care of the young. So that doesn't happen with solitary bees. And the majority of the bees on this planet are solitary. And it's only the honeybees that make honey, hence the name honeybees. I think that's, that's one of the first things. Um, bumblebees collect nectar and store nectar to feed their young, but they're not alchemists like honeybees. They don't turn it into honey. And it's the solitary bees that, I have found most fascinating, more because of their nesting behaviour than anything else. Well, how do they nest that sets them apart? All of the solitary bees that, that live in ready-made cavities, and they could be cavities in a wall, or they could be man-made nesting tubes made out of cardboard tubes or bamboo or something like that. The thing about these cavity nesting solitary bees, all of the mason bees and all of the leaf cutters as well, is that they are opportunists. So they take advantage of existing empty cavities. And the mason bees, the way that their life cycle goes, it's so simple really. They, I'm watching them out in our front garden at the moment. Once they've mated, the males have absolutely nothing to do then with the rearing of the brood. And then each individual female sets about searching for a place to lay her eggs in and um, she's probably got about say 20 or 30 eggs to lay in her short life on the wing and so suppose you've got a bee hotel bee nesting box in your back garden and she chooses one of your bamboo tubes first thing she'll do is she blocks off the back with a little bit of mud which she's mined that's why she's called a mason bee and then she goes backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, collecting pollen. This bee, incidentally, doesn't collect her pollen in pollen baskets, like the social bees, like the bumblebees and the honeybees that have great big baskets to collect pollen. She collects them underneath her abdomen on little stiff branched hairs. So she takes all of this pollen back in and she drops it in, in the back of the nesting tube. And when she's collected sufficient of this pollen she she taps it all into place and then she lays an egg on top of the pollen when she's laid that egg she then collects more mud and she blocks that little cell off and then more pollen another egg and another bit of mud and she'll go all the way to the entrance of the tube and when she gets to the very edge of the tube she blocks it off with a big plug of mud to seal the tube so that the whole tube is sealed. And the other thing she does, which is incredibly clever, is she lays female eggs at the back and male eggs at the front. And this is because these often are predated, these um, nests, by birds. And it is better 
for the species that it's the males that are predated than the females. So they're all they're all so so different. Once you make the time to sit and watch them, if you have the time, which of course we do have at the moment, it's just lovely to watch them and mind-boggling to think what they get up to. Well, we've heard that insects of all kinds are in really sharp decline in populations, including bees. How bad is the population collapse for bees specifically, and why is that? So some of the most endangered, the rarest bees, it's become very clear that it's habitat loss that is the prime, the main driver, uh, pesticides. And by pesticides, I mean insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, molluscicides, you know, the whole gamut of sides. Climate change is massive. And, you know, 10 years ago, I hadn't quite realised how big an issue climate change was. There's pathogens and parasites, diseases, invasive species, poor husbandry. So, you know, the way that we look after them or don't look after them is also a contributing factor. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there that you just said. I mean, with climate change alone, I I would imagine, you know, some plants are flowering earlier than they used to and the bees, maybe they don't coincide with that and they miss their meal and can't lay their eggs and, and that's that. Or maybe it's too hot for them, too cold for them. I mean, it's so very complicated. It is everything you just said. What's obvious to us is if it's flooding, If it's flooding, then bumblebee nests are going to flood. And if there's a drought, the plants are going to wither and die, or the nectar is going to dry up and there's not going to be enough for the bees to feed. If the weather is terrible, they're not going to come out. So those are the obvious effects of climate change. But you also mentioned plants flowering at different times to the the pollinating insects that, that, that pollinate them. And that's happening a lot. And one of the reasons that that is happening, I only really am able to tell you about Europe and the United Kingdom. So as the weather gets warmer in the south of England, we start to have lots of our insects coming out of hibernation a lot, lot earlier than they used to. So in February instead of April. But plants tend, as well as taking their cue from the warmth in the weather, they also take their cue from daylight hours. So whilst the weather is now warmer in February than it used to be, the daylight hours are no longer than they used to be. So that means, you know, it's it's very often it's the insects emerging before the flowers. Well, you write in your book that a lot of people are moving towards beekeeping themselves as a way to, you know, sort of save the bees. But you note that that may be a well-intentioned but sort of misguided practice. Why is that? What's going wrong with beekeeping? Well, the crucial thing you said there is the thought that people might begin to keep bees to help save bees. And in actual fact, you're no more going to save bees by becoming a beekeeper than you are going to save birds by becoming a chicken keeper. And the other thing is honeybees do not need saving. Honeybees are not endangered. And I know that hives fail and, you know, there are some years where there are more hive failures than in other years. But overall, worldwide, honeybees are not endangered species. They are, of course, incredibly important as as crop pollinators. They're important in their own right. I I love honeybees. My my husband is a beekeeper. We, We keep bees in the back garden. But the keeping honeybees, it's a beautiful thing to do. It's a lovely thing to do. And it's great if it just is, a for me, a stepping stone into the world of bees. But you're not going to save bees by becoming a beekeeper. Well, what can the average person do to help bees and other pollinators for that matter? Oh, we can do so much. And 
this is the beauty of trying to help bees. It's not like trying to to save, you know, one of our our huge, great, big, wonderful carnivores. Everybody can do something to help bees. So for starters, if you have access to growing space, you know, a back garden, a backyard, or um, a larger piece of land, then we can grow a larger variety of plants that are rich in pollen and nectar than we already do. So whatever you do, you know, plant more. And with these 20, 25,000 different species of bee, clearly it's not a case of one plant suits all bees or one bee pollinates all plants. So we need to increase diversity. We need flowers of different sizes as well. Flowers for long-tongued bees and short-tongued bees. Flowers with flat heads, flowers with bells, tubes, cups, huge, huge variety of flower shapes. So that's important. Stop using pesticides, find alternatives. And once you stop using the the insecticide, you know, a whole host of beneficial insects move in and they take care of the pests for you. So that's another thing. And the other thing I always think is one of the most beautiful things we can do, and maybe this is where I would start, is get out in your backyard or your garden or your plot and look and notice and watch and observe and get to know the insects that you already have there. It'll be really obvious to you if you have a plant that nobody visits. You know, if there's no interest in one plant but another is just covered in insects um, throughout the day, then maybe plant more of the one that's covered in insects. And I also think if you start to take time to watch it's very difficult not to start falling in love with them. And then when that happens, you start to look more deeply into causes of their decline. Um, you tend to want to do more to help them anyway then. So I think that's important. And providing habitat, allowing some of your growing space to be messier. You know, be a lazy gardener and allow some of your your plot to rewild. You know, I have a little patch on the side of my yard here that I thought was going to be an herb garden right near the house. And it just got away from me last year. And I just kind of threw my hands up in the air and gave up on it, to tell you the truth. But I tell you, by the end of August, it was just brimming with life. There were bumblebees, there were birds, there were dragonflies. It was the most dynamic patch of my yard far and away by just kind of throwing my hands up in the air about it. Oh my, that's exactly what we were just talking about then. It's just allowing nature to find its own place within your space. Just mm-hmm. inviting it in. Do you know, I'm seeing because of what's going on with the lockdown, our council are not mowing at the moment. Nothing is being mowed. Mm. And oh my goodness, honestly, the, the wildflowers that are popping up and weeds, people will call them in many cases, But again, like you, I am seeing so much wildlife just moving in because it feels safe to move in. And I think, you know, if if we if we carry on with a little bit of that afterwards, just allow our gardens, our spaces or or ourselves just just allow a little bit of rewilding to happen. And like you say, it happens by accident. That's brilliant. You know, I have to tell you, since I've been reading your book, I I notice bees more. You know, I think I feel curious, you know, what is this bee and what's it doing? What's its activities? Is it making a nest in the leaves or is it just poking around in there? You know, it's it's so fascinating once you start to look how much more you see and then you realize how much more, how, how little you really know. 
Oh, I know. That's music to my ears. Do you know what? When I stopped relying on learning about bees from books and started just watching them myself, and you mentioned, you know, what's it doing under that pile of leaves? And if it's a huge bumblebee and you keep watching and it gets up and it flies away and it doesn't come back, you think, oh, well, it was just investigating. But if you sit long enough and it comes back, then you think, oh my gosh, it could be nesting there. And you only notice this if you give it the time of day, if you sit and really, really watch. I start to recognise the different sounds as well that different bees make. You know, the huge, great big bumblebees. The bigger they are, the deeper their buzz. And then sometimes you, you just get used to that noise and you hear, and you think, oh, that's not a bumblebee. And, and you then go searching for that bee. And one of the most exciting connections I made of all was hearing another buzz, a very, very weird buzz. And it was kind of a bit like a dentist drill. I, I was sitting in my garden listening to bees and I heard, and I thought, oh, it sounds like a bee that's maybe stuck in a spider's web or something. It sounds really alarmed. And I followed the sound of the buzz and I found this bee inside a poppy and she was going round and round and round inside the poppy, having a pollen bath. And so I listened and watched. And in time, I realised that the bees, when they came to the poppies, always made that noise. When I looked it up um, to see, you know, what's going on here, it turned out that those bees were buzz foraging or sonicating. And it's really only bumblebees and some of the solitary bees that can do this bumblebees what they do is they come and they wrap themselves around the flower and then they disconnect the flight muscles inside their thorax but they continue to vibrate so they're vibrating the indirect flight muscles twice as fast as they would if they were flying it's called sonication and it causes the plant to literally explode out its pollen. And this is what the bees were doing on the poppies. Listen for it. Next, next time you have time to sit in your garden, if you hear what you think might be a very distressed bee, have a look and it could be a bee um, buzz pollinating. So yeah, that's again, it's to do with noticing and watching and enjoying and learning from the bees, actually, learning from the bees themselves rather than from the books. You've obviously written a, just such a delightful book here. I've really enjoyed reading it. And you set out on this quest to, to learn about nature, to reconnect with nature, and used bees as a vehicle for that. How safe is it to say that you've been pretty successful here? I'm back way beyond anything I have ever experienced, even as a child, I think. I have the awe and wonder that had been lost. I tread more carefully everywhere I go. I mean, when I was a child, I was like a bull in a china shop. I'm a lot more careful now. I'm a lot more respectful. I'm more grateful. And I give back now. You know, as children, you, you're not in a position maybe to give back. So my relationship, I think, has become more reciprocal now. I think that's the biggest thing. I'm so grateful um, to the bees for providing whatever this is, a window or a door, back to nature. I'd love to go backwards. I'd love for this to have happened earlier or for me never to have lost my connection my hope is for my grandchildren and for other children that they don't lose it like so many of us and I hope my book inspires people to go out and look in their gardens 
just that. If, if it does, then that's, that's my job done. Bridget Strawbridge-Hauer is a bee advocate and author of the book Dancing with Bees, A Journey Back to Nature. Bridget, thank you so much for, for this delightful conversation. No, thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Bobby. To get the stories behind the stories on Living on Earth, as well as special updates, please sign up for the Living on Earth newsletter. Every week you'll find out about upcoming events and get a look at show highlights and exclusive content. Just navigate to the Living on Earth website, that's loe.org, and click on the newsletter link at the top of the page. That's loe.org. Well, observing bees in your garden may seem like a one-way street. We can watch them as they go about their business, but they don't pay much attention to us. But for Living on Earth's explorer and residence, Mark Seth Lender, that's not always the case. The hurricane did not amount to much, not by the standards of New England, where we have history of great storms that take lives and sink ships and tear away the land. This one brought more water than wind. Even so, here close to the sea, it was enough. Surrounded by debris, a single hydrangea, sole survivor among what once were many, is in flower and covered with bumblebees, one to every stamen in the dense white array of blooms. How important to them, this one bush, the difference between extirpation and continuity. They go about their business at a low, contented hum. Like a punctuation mark in her warning colors of black and yellow, a guard bee leaves the others straight up, straight towards me. She stops eight inches from my face, right between my eyes. Below and behind her, the others continue in their work, not her. She flies out and around me, returning to the same place, and again, and again, and does not touch me, but only hovers, unwavering, perfectly balanced, her impossibly small bumblebee wings beating to a transparency. I know what she wants. She behaves as if she knows that I know, or at least that I should. But I wait to see what will she do. How long will it take before her patience wanes and she stings me? Five hundred million years of evolution separate us. Her ancient compound eyes are not the camera eyes by which I see. Her brain is not like mine, nor her form, except for the fact of a fundamental symmetry we share, that the left side is the same as the right. And yet perceives what and where my eyes are and that this is how to get my attention, that I live behind my eyes. Me, I am here. This is where my consciousness abides, that I am a sentient being. How can she know? It can only be a projection, one she would not make if she were not conscious of her own consciousness and its same location. 
Perhaps this is why, rather than harming me, she waits. Until I take my two steps back, she pauses for a fraction of a beat, then dives into the flowers where she disappears. That's Living on Earth Explorer in Residence, Mark Seth Lender. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Anne Flaherty, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Corey Suzuki, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth. And find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I am Bobby Bascom. Thanks for listening. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. PR.